Great truth. Great truth. We have a merciful God. How many of you like hot weather? Raise your hand. I don't mean to focus on what we're experiencing here this morning, but our sermon title is From Misery to Hope. And so if you are suffering, have hope. <laughs> but don't put your hope in the brevity of the message. I just want to go ahead and clarify that at this point in time. We're going to go ahead and through what we're studying. I, when I was in Texas, I had a pastor friend. We was there for five years, just over five years. And the, the pastors of the deaf churches would gather together on a regular basis, sometimes three or four times a year, just to encourage one another, to pray for one another, for different planning events across the state. And it was a wonderful time. But one of those guys was just a curmudgeon. You guys know what a curmudgeon is? Why do we have to come all this way for this meeting? Why do I have to be out of my own pulpit for a while or be away from my own church for a while? Why are we meeting here? I don't like this place. Did you like the food? The food was terrible. When it gave me indigestion. I hate sleeping anywhere. It's not my own bed. Couldn't get any rest at all last night. Oh, that idea you're putting, let me give you seven reasons why it's not practical and it's not going to happen. And by the way, we tried it before and it didn't work. What makes you think it's going to work now? Do you guys know what a curmudgeon is? Kind of a, a downcast look and a Grumbling person, quick to find fault, unhappy. Actually, I think miserable. Miserable and wanting to share misery. Misery loves company. Miserable and wanting to share misery. Well, after about two years, and of course, we just all kind of say, well, that's him. That's how he is. We're going to be as encouraging as we can be. But in the last two years that we were there and we began together, this guy's whole countenance changed. He went from being a grumbler and a complainer, to being very encouraging and very joyful and very leading, very optimistic. As a matter of fact, he began putting out new ideas and he was taking in interns at his church to train the next generation of leaders. And he began to rather complain about the people that were giving him problems. He changed that and began talking about the people in whose lives God was working. His countenance had changed. His attitude had changed. Somehow he had gone from misery to joy. Well, Arthur and I were, were noticeable, noticed, it was, I mean, it was, everybody noticed it, but we asked him what happened. You know, this is a distinct change, and it seems like it was not a gradual change. It seems like it was a pretty quick change from one, one session to the next. What happened? And he told a story of how he had been striving in his own strength and how he had gotten to the point of frustration where he's ready to wash his hands of the whole thing. No joy, no happiness, no fulfillment, all frustration. And he got to the end of his rope and he said, God, if you want me to stay, you've got to tell me that you want me to stay. Otherwise, I'm out of here. I can can be happier working in the oil industry in Texas than I can be pastoring your people in this church at this time. And a man came to him, one of his sponsor pastors came to him and they talked and they prayed together. And this guy, actually, he realized that he had been depending upon his own strength, that there were sins that were unconfessed in his life, that he was not walking with God personally. He was not walking with God with his family. And he had become bitter and inward focused because of the distance that he felt from God. Last week, we asked the question, does God abandon us? Some of you were like, did we really answer the question? And the answer to the question is, God is faithful. He does not leave us and he does not forsake us. When we are distant from God, it is because we have moved away. Here's the deal, though. He does let us move away. 
He does let us experience that distance. And there are times when it seems like heaven is silent and the result of that is misery. So we start here in Micah chapter 6 with, a, with, with basically a court case. God is saying to the mountains, listen, I'm going to let my people make their complaints against me. And then I'm going to make my complaints against the people. There's a covenant here. There's an agreement that has been approached, uh, that has been broached. Mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He's made a case against his people. He's bringing charges. But the first thing that he declares is his own faithfulness. He asks them, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. Why won't you obey me? Why do you not seek me? Why are your hearts from me? And he recounts the things that he's done. I brought you out of Egypt. You remember the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt, and he brought them out. He redeemed them from slavery. He sent them special people like Moses and Aaron and Miriam to be his voice, uh, to, to help them as they traveled. As his people traveled out of Egypt, you remember, there was a, and they got close to, the, to uh, the promised land. This is about 40 years after all of that. Then we have King Balak and the Moabites who are threatened by them. And so they get together and they try to get um, uh, uh, Balaam to curse them, to, uh, uh, to, to stop them, to hinder them, to have God hinder them. And yet he does not. Every time Balaam opens his mouth, out comes a blessing. God has chosen to bless them. And then they come to one side of the Jordan, uh, the Acacia Grove. That's a translation, by the way. The, the, the name that is most often used here is Shittim, S-H-I-T-T-I-M. And that's their last encampment after 40 years in the wilderness before they crossed the Jordan River. And they make their first encampment in the promised land at Gilgal. So when he talks about from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, he's saying, listen, God demonstrated his faithfulness by bringing you. You remember how he brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. But when they went to get into the promised land, the Jordan River had overflowed. And as the priests stepped their feet in, God rolled back the river and they walked again across a river on dry land to enter the promised land. God's great act on behalf of Israel are seen as more than simply God's coming to the aid of his people. They are the demonstrations. This is God saying, I've been with you all the time. I hadn't left you. I've been faithful to you. The things that I covenanted to you, I am keeping and I am maintaining. God unfailingly keeps his word. And so for you and I this morning, and I don't know where you are on the misery schedule. I don't know if you're so miserable you just can't. There's no joy in your life and, and you're at the end of the rope. Or whether it's just occasional misery, but there is hope. So wherever you are, the first thing that we need to do is to remember that we have a faithful God. This whole series has been about what is God like? How does God reveal himself in, in Scripture? We need to remember that we have a faithful God, that he doesn't leave us, that he doesn't neglect us. He extends common grace to us. He lets the sun shine on the, on the just and the unjust, and he sends the rain. There's a common grace, and God never in 1 Timothy, when Paul is writing to Timothy and he's encouraging his faithfulness, he reminds him, he says, even, even when we are faithless, God is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And hopefully, as you reflect on this message and as you meet with your home groups, you'll be reminded of the faithfulness of God. You'll be reminded how God has cared for you and protected you and ask God to reveal to you those things so that you can certainly count your blessings. But... As God makes his case through Micah, what have you to say against me? The, the acknowledgement is, yeah, God's faithful. We acknowledge that. And so somehow we've got to appease 
this God of the heights or God of the heavens. So what do we do? How do we move from misery to joy? How do we move from the oppression or the struggle that we're having to joyful? How do we get right with God? What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring in burnt offerings? That was one of their religious activities. Should we just bow before God Most High with offerings of yearling calves? That was the best ones. You could give a calf any time after seven days old, but the best ones were the ones who had been fed and nurtured, the ones that cost you the most to take care of, the ones that you had experienced the most loss when you gave, and you gave those the yearling calves. Maybe we should offer him thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil, large amounts, massive. And then he goes on in this next verse, and, and this is an amazing thing. Maybe we should give away that which is most dear to us. Maybe we should offer to God the lives of our firstborn kids. These are progressively more valuable, ending with the most precious thing one could give. And I don't fault them for saying, well, if God's mad, let's pay him off. Let's do something that will kind of appease him. I don't, I don't blame him for that. Why? Because their rulers and their judges were for hire. If you paid enough, you'd get a favorable ruling. Their prophets were for profit. Their priests worked for what they could earn. And so if you really wanted to say a blessing, to get a blessing from God through the prophet, you'd bring him money. You'd try to satisfy his desire so that he would be a blessing. And their mindset had to be, well, God must be like that. What can we do to appease God? What can we do to satisfy God? What can we do to earn God's blessing? That's the equivalent today, by the way, of us saying, all right, I understand that there's a problem with me and God, so I'm going to be as good as I can be. I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to stop getting drunk on the weekends. I'm going to stop sleeping around. I'm I'm going to stop losing my temper. And I'm going to stop speaking with profane language and cussing everybody out. I'm going to stop cheating people. Uh, I'm, I'm going to stop. And you say all of these things that you're going to not do to somehow gain the pleasure of God. And then we become religious. I'm going to go to church. By the way, it's a good thing. But I'm going to go to church. And I'm going to go to church every week. And I'm going to sign up. And I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve. As a matter of fact, I'll serve in the, the, the places that aren't out front. I'll, I'll, I'll serve in cleaning. And I'll serve in nursery. And I'll serve in these other places. Because, you know, God likes stuff like that. You know, I'll even give. I'll bring money. Budget's tight, but that's okay. I'm going to bring money. I will do it. I'll go on mission trips. I'm going to be as good a person as I can be, and somehow that will please God. For those of you who've been there, how'd that work out for you? I'm going to tell you that you cannot be made right with God in your own strength in your own power by trying to do your best. The most bitter and the unhappiest people I have ever met are those who have seen the goodness of God, those who have recognized at least at some level the faithfulness of God and are trying in their own strength to please Him apart from Him. What happens when we make Christianity or a relationship with God simply about a list of rules that we do or we don't do? One of two things happen. Either we feel like we're doing pretty good and we get puffed up with this incredible, horrible pride. Or we become aware that we can't. 
And we're an abject failure. I'm going to do this and I fail. I'm going to do this and I fail. I'm going to do this and I fail. And that leads to misery and despondency. A kind of horrible pride encourages people to look at me. I'm doing pretty well. The despondency is please don't look at me. Look anywhere else. Because I don't want you to see how I fail. And none of those work. So what then? As we continue our text, we have verse 8. He gives the summary, the, kind of the heart of what it means to walk with God. Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. To do justice, to do what is right, to love mercy, to freely and willingly show kindness to others. And that's all wrapped up in this last phrase, to walk humbly with your God. That means to live in conscience felt, conscious fellowship with God, exercising a spirit of humility before him. It means pursuing him. And the relationship with him. God has no interest in the multiplication of religious activity or your commitment to it. It's what Isaiah, who prophesied at the same time as Micah, said to their leaders. The Lord said, these people draw near me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm one of God's chosen people. I'm one of his, but their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Again, not the word of God, not God working and bringing about change in their life, but simply their own best efforts. Can I talk to you about sacrifices to God? Sacrifices are only acceptable to God when accompanied by or motivated by a heart that is humble before him. As I was studying this passage, I kept thinking about David. David's a great king. David's a great king. He was a man after God's own heart. He walked with God. And David was a terrible sinner. David, we have a record of uh, adultery. We have a record of murder, bringing about someone's death. We have a record of a lot of ways that David stumbled and fell. And, and, and a lot of times where David was miserable. And the, the cause of his misery was his rebellion against God. In Psalm 51, we have a prayer of repentance. And David says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Wash me from my iniquities. Cleanse me from my sin. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And he goes on and he describes what happens to a heart that is separated from God by sin. But he sums this up kind of toward the end, later in the chapter where he says, God, you don't desire a sacrifice for me. It's not the ram or the goat. It's not the behavior. You don't desire a sacrifice for me or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. And then he sums this up and he says, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken spirit and a repentant heart. He goes on to say, look with favor on Zion. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then... You'll be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. What is, what is Psalm 51 about? Psalm 51 is about a horrible sinner, but a great repenter. And David becoming right with God, moving back from misery to joy. He even says, I think it's around verse 12 or 13, where he says, you know, Restore a right spirit within me. My, my spirit is soured. My soul is sick. Heal me and, and, and bring me joy again. It's the picture of misery. And so this morning, I'm going to move pretty quickly through this, but there are things that cause misery. 
And I want us to kind of nail this down. The, the reason we don't experience joy, the reason life is not what we intend it to be. We are miserable when our Christianity is a Sunday activity separate from the entirety of our lives. You guys ever work with someone or you ever spend time with someone who goes to church on a regular basis? Maybe sing in the choir. Maybe they are in a Sunday school class or a small group Bible study and you work with them or you have interaction with them at, at the gym or, or whatever, whatever context that you engage them. And when you hear them speak, you'd never know that they professed Christ on Sunday. They talk about sinful things that they have been doing. They speak in sinful manners and they have compartmentalized their lives so that on Sunday, we'll do this. And Sunday kind of gives us our refreshment for the week. And then on Monday, we get back into the basically the cesspool. We'll get, we'll get back into it and we'll roll up our sleeves and we'll lie and we'll cheat and we'll manipulate and we'll stab people in the back and we'll gossip and we'll do harm and we'll steal and we will, we will do those things that we think will get us ahead and it, it reflects nothing of what they profess on Sunday. Can I tell you, there are a lot of people who think they are Christians because they are a member of a church or their name is on a church roll. They think they're Christians because they show up, but Christianity is much deeper. Christianity is a radical change of life. God wants us to walk humbly with him. And that doesn't mean that we stand and let him walk away from us or that we walk away from him. It is coming to him in humility and repentance and then living lives in communion with God. The Bible has so much to say about the hypocrisy and the frustration of being one thing one time and professing one thing and then living a different way. And that's exactly how the children of Israel were described. As you go on through chapter 6, you see their sins enumerated, the cheating of the businessman, the violence, the, the lying and the dishonesty. You need to understand that when there's that separation... When that is not an understanding of Christianity. When you have those religious rules divorced from your life and who you are, you're going to be miserable. But they're also mis miserable because uh, of the failure of their sin to satisfy. We get mis miserable when we seek to find fulfillment or peace or joy or satisfaction or, or, or significance in anything or anyone other than than God anything or anyone other than God and this is a fascinating passage to me God's when God judges in verses 13 of chapter 6 and following I will wound you I will ruin you for your sins and how does God say you're going to experience this he says you're going to eat but never have enough you ever been there you guys ever have a hard time getting full eat but never have enough hunger pains and emptiness will remain and although you try to save your money, you won't have any soon. Anybody can relate to that? You'll save a little, but I will give it to those who conquer you. You'll plant crops, but you won't harvest them. You'll press your olives, but you won't even get enough oil to anoint yourselves. You will trample grapes, but you get no juice to make your wine. What's the point that he's making? He says, I'm going to let you pursue what you want to pursue. You're going to lie and cheat at business to get ahead. It's going to come to nothing. It will not satisfy. You're going to pursue this, and you're going to be that kind of person who disobeys me and who gossips and cheats and steals and lies. 
All of these things that you're working for, the greed, the satisfaction of, that you're seeking from the world, it will not, it cannot satisfy. It cannot satisfy. You guys know in Hebrews the, the statement I think that is made that, uh, that there are those who seek sin or sin gives pleasure for a season. Sin feels good for a time. There's a temporary thrill when we're eating what we shouldn't or when we're online where we should not be or we're engaged in a behavior that we know is wrong and it is an immediate hit of adrenaline that acts to hide from us the true nature of what's going on. Sin can be fun for a little while, but the consequences can be devastating. I went to North Greenville College, North Greenville University. It was North Greenville College when I went. It was a two-year school. And the first year I went, I moved into Bruce Hall which was a new dorm back then. That'll tell you how long ago it was. But the second year, they needed an RA. So I went to Lawton Hall, which is, by the way, long been destroyed. But matter of fact, the year after we moved out, they tore it down, which was a win, by the way, because it was, it was in really rough shape. Uh, I, I was an RA, so I had a room by myself right next to the boiler room. And you may not know this, but I like to drink coffee. And that's not new. I've been drinking coffee since I was about 12 years old. And at school, I basically lived off of coffee, but I had a coffee maker in my room. I was the RA. It was permitted, or at least winked at. And so I had my coffee maker in the room, and I'll never forget one night I was uh, drinking coffee, and all of a sudden, something just stuck to my lip. I thought, what? What in the world is that? And I pulled it down, and it was a roach in my coffee cup, been floating around the bottom of the coffee cup. You guys ever had an experience like that? It's okay. I pulled him out. And no, I threw it out and made it. Roaches were everywhere, but roaches weren't the worst problem. Ants were everywhere. I don't know if you guys know this about college age guys, freshmen, sophomore at any rate, or at least me. Uh, I eat sweets, a lot of sweets. That would be candy bars and that would be cookies and anything bready and just, and I would keep them in the dorm room. And so I didn't have a single roommate, but I had about a million ants that were in the room. And oftentimes, before I'd go to bed, I'd have to brush the ants off, of the, off the sheet before I could go to sleep. I, it really wasn't that bad, okay? It really wasn't that bad. But have you ever had a problem with ants? I went to the director of the building's property there at North Carolina. I said, what do I do? He said, well, we have this stuff that kills ants Here. You can have some, use it in your dorm room. I said, well, what do I do? Do I spray it? Do I, do I, you know, what is the application process? He said, yeah, put it around the room. He said, don't put it everywhere ants are. You won't be able to handle it. But it was a borax type stuff. And then he said, honestly, the easiest thing to do is to make the ants come to it. So just get some warm water and mix sugar up in it. Put it in a shallow bowl and sprinkle the stuff around it and in it and the ants will come to it. And I thought, that's a good idea. We'll do that. Unfortunately, the first place I did it was on my desk. Don't do that. <laughs> because all of a sudden, you guys, have you ever seen ants marching the line? Yes. I had ants coming up, the uh, lines of ants coming. They were attracted to the sugar water. And by the way, I don't know how word gets out, but buddy, they have great communication system because word got out. All these ants came, and they would go in, and they would go through this borax or whatever it was, and they would go into the water. And matter of fact, there were dead ants there, and ants were pushing dead ants out of the way so they could get to it. Not knowing or not caring that it was going to bring about their death. 
Can I tell you something about sinfulness? We sin because we like it, because we think it's good for us or better for us, because we think it's going to satisfy us in some way. And yet the Bible says very clearly the wages of sin is death. We see it from Genesis 3 all the way, all the way to Revelation 20. We see the consequence of what it means to rebel God. And what God is reinforcing them at the end of chapter 6, and we just got through chapter 6, chapter 7 is coming. But what he's reminding them is, is the misery that sin brings and the, fruit, the, the, the futility of living a life apart from God. And he judges us. The last verses there, therefore I will make an example of you and bring you to complete ruin. You'll be treated with contempt and mocked by all who see you. God judges the sin that we embrace. And then we come to chapter 7, and you have the personification of Israel as an individual sitting and suffering. And, and what is the first phrase of chapter 7? How miserable I am. It doesn't satisfy like a fruit picker after the harvest who got no food. Like a cluster, not even a cluster of grapes or a single early fig can be found to satisfy my hunger. It does not satisfy uh, and, it, and it's not only me, sin spreads. The godly people have all disappeared. There's not an honest person left on the earth. They're all murderers. They set traps even for their own brothers. And their hands are equally skilled at doing evil. Even the leaders, the officials and judges demand bribes. The people with influence get what they want and together they scheme to twist justice. And even the best of them is like a briar or a thorn. But God's judgment day is coming swiftly now. The time of his punishment is here. The time of confusion. Don't trust anyone, not your best friend or even your wife. The son despises his father. The daughter despises her mother. The daughter-in-law, her mother-in-law. Your enemies are right in your own household. What a description of misery. No satisfaction. No one to trust. No one to depend on. Can anybody relate? Have you ever been alone and you felt, I'm in this by myself? Have you ever been betrayed? Misery indeed. Even at home, it should be a place where we work for each other's good. It's filled with arguing and fighting and selfishness and battle. Is there any hope? Is there any hope to be found? Maybe if I just get another job. Maybe if I just move to another location. Maybe if I just drop this relationship and I go seek another relationship. Maybe it'll be better when I get out of school and graduate. Maybe it'll be better at the next step. But none of these things last. Hope, salvation is only found in God. Verse 7 of chapter 7. As for me, I will look to the Lord for help. I wait confidently for God to save me. And my God will certainly hear me. My God will certainly hear me. He, we have the theme here of humility and hope is like what Jesus says and what the New Testament repeats over and over. Repent and believe. Humble yourself and trust. Now listen to the promises. By the way, if you're here and you don't know the peace that comes from being at peace with God, if you're here and you don't know the joy that comes from being forgiven and cleansed and having your sin trampled underfoot, you may be miserable and not know you're miserable. Can you... Can you be miserable and not know you're miserable? I mean, you know, a lot of times you, you know when you're miserable, right? But can you be miserable and not know when you're miserable? You know, one of the amazing gifts that people have is the ability to adapt, adapt to circumstances and situations. Have you ever been outside on a really hot day? And it felt hot, 
It didn't feel that bad. And then you walked into a very cool air-conditioned room. I should have not used that example today. And you didn't know you were that hot until it got cool. Or maybe you're carrying on conversation with somebody and they say, I'm hungry. And you're like, me too. I didn't realize I was hungry until they mentioned it. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is writing a letter to the church at Laodicea. And he addresses them. He says, you guys think you're okay. You're saying we have all that we need. We have need of nothing. He said, and you're blind. You don't know that you are poor and naked and miserable and blind. So one of the things that we pray for people is God opens our eyes to the circumstances that we're in, to our need to move from misery to hope. And by the way, one of the purposes of God's discipline and God's judgment is to bring us to the point of repentance. And here's what God does. Here's how God moves and how God acts. He says, I fall, but I'll rise again. I sit in darkness, but the Lord's my light. The Lord is punishing me because I've sinned against him. But after that sin is dealt with, we're talking about that in just a minute, he takes up my case. Here's the point. God was accusing them. He's talking about the time when God defends him and justifies him and presents him. Their accuser becomes their defense, their advocate. God will give me justice, vindication for all I have suffered. I will see his righteousness. The Lord is on my side. People ask, where is this Lord, this God of yours? And they'll see. God will make it, complain, make it plain. He goes on and he says, I love this. Uh, again, I'm going to pick up in verse 14. Oh, Lord, protect your people with your shepherd's staff. Lead your flock, your special possession. Though they live alone in a thicket on the heights of Mount Carmel, but which is not a good place to be there, Rocky Mountain, let them graze in the fertile river valleys of Bashan and Gilead as they did long ago. God does miracles, mighty miracles, like those he did when he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. The nations will stand amazed, and there is coming that day at the end of time when all of God's prophecies will be fulfilled. Listen, God forgives, he cleanses, he protects, he provides, he restores, he vindicates, he washes, he adopts, he saves, he seals, he redeems, he chooses, and we can be filled with the fullness of God. That's why Micah... Speaking on behalf of Israel and those who know God, says in verse 18, where is a God like you? Who is a God like you? Is any God like ours? Who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his people? You don't stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Sometimes we think God grudgingly loves us or grudgingly lets us into heaven or God focuses on on our failures to the extent that we, at the very least, he just puts up with us. What's God like? God knows every sinful thought, every act of rebellion. God knows every sinful desire that becomes expressed in our life. He knows every bitter word, every lie, every gossip, every exaggeration. God knows every bit of resentment and bitterness. When you think you're getting away with something, whether it be dealing with the petty cash or not putting something on the form to the IRS, when it comes to 
taking advantage and manipulating those who are under your power and under your authority. When you cheat and you think you're okay because you didn't get caught, God knows. God knows. There's nothing that is hidden from him. There's no place he is not. There's nothing he's not aware. And when you just begin to list in your mind the things, what about last week? How did last week go? And you begin to see the weight in the scales of your rebellion. Is it reasonable that we should fear a holy God who judges sin? It is. And yet, he's also a God of mercy. He delights in showing mercy. I deal with people so often who struggle with guilt. I know I've been a bad person. I know I've done bad things. Maybe one day God can find it in his heart to forgive me. (laughs) Can I tell you? Maybe I can get good enough somehow to be acceptable with God. Can I tell you something about God? You're worse than you think you are. Your heart's deceitful and desperately wicked, but you're not worse than he knows you are. And even with that reality, he delights in showing mercy. He seeks you and searches for you and calls you. He sends people to invite you and to share with you. By his Holy Spirit, he convicts of sin so that you know there's a need. He he convicts of righteousness so that you know there's an answer. And the answer is not in your righteousness. And I deal with people all the time who just wade under with guilt. And can I tell you something? What you need is not to get better. You need to give up. You need to say, I can't, because God knows you can't. You need to say, I've been willful and I've been away. God knows you've been willful and been away. And you need to turn to him. And what you can know about him is he delights in showing mercy. Like the father of the prodigal son, he looks to see you a long way off and runs to meet you when you come. And when you come, you come without excuse. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this iniquity in thy sight. And when you come, you come with clarity. Father, the bones that you have broken bring healing that I may rejoice again. You come acknowledging I've been in misery and I didn't know the extent of my own misery Until I've come to taste the goodness of God and his joy. Isn't that good? If you're here this morning, you may be like Israel and Judah. Distant from the God who created you and you've never come to him. You've never known what it means to be guilt free. Can I tell you what he longs to do? He longs to take every sin that you have ever committed and trample them under his feet. And to throw them into the depth of the ocean and remember them no more and to declare you not guilty, not because of your righteousness, but because of the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Your sins are many. His mercy is more. 
You may be here, and you're a believer. You know what it means. You have tasted the Lord and seen his goodness. You have sung songs from your heart to the Lord, not, not merely as some sort of performance or not merely as some sort of, I'm going to follow along with the crowd, but when we sing of his faithfulness, you've experienced his faithfulness. You remember his faithfulness. But in times past, you've allowed yourself to be drawn away, to be convicted like an ant to the sugar bowl. And you're experiencing the consequences of that. God says, come back. Repent. Respond to the conviction and seek after him. What does God require of you? That you do justice that you love mercy, that you walk humbly with him. Father, I want to thank you that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. Who is a God like you who is patient with us? Who is a God like you who, who washes us and cleanses us and forgives us? Who is a God like you who tramples our sins under your feet, who separates them from us as far as the east is from the west? Who is a God like you who fills us with peace and joy and strength and confidence, not in what we do, but in what you have done and what you continue to do as we experience life walking with you? Father, I pray for those who have been separated from you by sin and have never come to you in repentance, that you will draw them to yourself in repentance and faith. But for those of us who are believers, those of us who are chosen already and those of us who are wrong, what is keeping us from the joy that you desire for us to have? What is it that's bringing about our misery? Identify that. Deal with it that we may confess and repent, that we may humble ourselves and that we may experience all of the glorious provision that you have for us. Father, speak to us today. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.